Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. This is True Crime Garage. And this is the Killing Fields Trilogy. Interstate 45, or I-45, is a highway located entirely in the state of Texas. The interstate is just over 280 miles in length and connects two major U.S. cities, Dallas and Houston. From Houston, the highway continues southeast down to Galveston. There is a portion of I-45 that is known to Houston residents as the Gulf Freeway. A short elevated section of I-45 in southern downtown Houston is known as Pierce Elevated. And a 50-mile stretch of desolate land between Houston and Galveston is called the Highway of Hell. A mile from I-45 lies a 25-acre patch of land that borders the Calder Oil Field. This is known to all as the Texas Killing Field. It is just rugged wasteland but it is here that for decades the dead have appeared. Starting in the early 1970s and to this day, many bodies of murder victims have been found within this area and the killing field. Many girls and young women have gone missing. Several have never been found. There are some similarities in these cases. All of the victims are pretty young girls and women between the ages of 12 and 23 and most of the located victims were found in or around water. The Texas Killing Fields murders will involve three different counties, and 12 different law enforcement agencies have worked these cases, including the FBI. Despite exhaustive efforts, very few of these murders have been solved. Many officers say that the 50-mile stretch is the perfect dumping ground for serial killers, and the Killing Field has been described as a place that even if you yelled, no one would hear you, and if you ran, 
there wouldn't be anywhere to go. This is the perfect place for killing someone and getting away with it. The disappearances, abductions, and murders span over 30 years. Welcome to the Killing Fields Trilogy. Part 1. The 1970s By the 1970s, America knew all about crime. She had experienced so much of it in her young history. The 1960s was the decade of the assassination. We lost so many great leaders of men and women during that decade. Texas was home to one of the worst, when John F. Kennedy was shot dead in front of a crowd of people in Dallas on November 22, 1963. In the 1970s, America would become aware of monsters that had been around since the beginning, but were lurking quietly in the shadows. The Serial Killers. This was to be the decade when America and the world would learn about Ted Bundy, John Gacy, and David Berkowitz. And again, Texas would be home to one of the worst. Some called him the Galveston Killer, or the Purple Passion Killer. Many said he didn't have a name, or that he had several. Whoever he was, he traveled the I-45 highway, and he played in the killing fields. June 1971, 13-year-old Colette Wilson vanished after being dropped off at a bus stop after her school band practice. Before her mother could pick her up, someone else did. A couple of weeks after Colette's disappearance in July, Brenda Jones, just 14, disappeared while on her way to visit a sick relative at Galveston General Hospital, which is right off of Interstate 45. October 1971, Gloria Gonzalez, 19, a grocery store bookkeeper, left on vacation, and that was the last time she was seen alive. In November, Debbie Ackerman and Maria Johnson, best friends, were last seen together outside of an ice cream store. January, of 1973. Kimberly Pitchford, 16 years old, walked out of a driver's education class. She was going to call her mother for a ride home, but she never did. She was never heard from again. Brooks Bricewell and Georgia Gear from Dickinson, Texas, were last seen at a convenience store in September of the following year. 12-year-old Suzanne Bowers was abducted as she walked home in May of 1977. 11 victims in total. At the time, authorities believed the killings were all the work of a single killer. Most of the victims were similar in appearance, and most were found near or in bodies of water. Several of these cases would be a nightmare to investigate, as the area only had scattered small towns, and the police did not share information freely or compare notes. Sure, a nightmare to investigate, but more so a nightmare for the communities to endure the loss. Fear had set in. For Galveston and the surrounding area, murder had come to town. And this was only the beginning. Welcome to the Killing Fields Trilogy.
1971. Colette Wilson was one of 10 children. They lived in Alvin, Texas. Colette's father, Thomas, was a dentist. Colette had just finished the seventh grade, and that summer she was attending band camp at a local high school. On Thursday, June 17th, at 12.30 p.m. in the afternoon, her band director dropped her off at Highway 6 and County Road 99. Her mother arrived at 12.36 p.m., but Colette was nowhere to be found. When she accompanied her mother, Claire, to the bus stop to pick up her older sister, Colette, Alice said in an interview, we thought maybe she had gotten a ride with someone else, so we called all of her friends that lived nearby. They were unable to find any sign of Colette, and the family knew something must be terribly wrong. They reported the girl missing, but unfortunately the authorities labeled her a runaway. Colette was just 13 years old at this time, which seems a little young to be labeled someone who might run away, just in my opinion. Well, it's very irresponsible. So regardless of what the authorities thought, that didn't stop the Wilson family from taking out an Alvin, Texas map and organizing volunteers who would search the area for the next three weeks. Colette's little sister recalls the agony. She said the best thing that they could do was kneel around Colette's bed and pray every day and night, saying it held them together during the long months as they searched for Colette. A couple weeks after Colette's disappearance on July 1st, Brenda Jones, who was just 14 years old, she left her house. Now, Brenda's family didn't have much money. They didn't have a car. Brenda's mother and her sisters relied on public transportation to make their way about. Brenda disappeared after a visit to a sick relative at Galveston General Hospital, which is right off of Interstate 45. Now, the bus driver would later confirm to police and investigators that Brenda had made it to the bus stop. The bus had dropped her off there. So this is on her way back home. She arrived at the bus stop. This means she disappeared just blocks from her house. Brenda's mother reported her as missing that night. However, police told her that they would not file the report because it was too soon. She had not been missing long enough, and she would probably turn up sooner rather than later. Right, and this is in the 70s. These laws would be changed later. Yeah, and this is something we will see and have seen throughout the course of the 70s. You know, often when a kid goes missing, especially a teenager, the authorities immediately believe that they've run away or they've just taken off with some friends because I'm sure that's what happens 90% of the time. Regardless, you got to take these reports seriously. So now we have Colette, which is 13 years old. Her family's looking for her. And now we have 14-year-old Brenda that her family's looking for her as well. Yeah, and Brenda's family did not have to look too long. Her body was found the next day, the day after she had gone missing. Uh, She was found floating in Galveston Bay close to the Seawolf Parkway and near I-45. Her body was nude, and she had died from manual strangulation. Now, there are a lot of websites out there, a lot of hacks out there that have reported that Brenda died from a head wound But this is just simply not true. If you go and do the research in this case, you will find that her cause of death uh, to be head wound. Don't email that to us later. Email the the creator of that website because that information is wrong. Right. But how many autopsies have we seen that were wrong? Right. And I'm just reporting what's been seen on several 
websites that have covered this case. The information that we have is from a very credible source uh, who has reviewed the actual autopsy. So that's why I'm going to go with. Well, I'm just, you know, stating. Oh, I mean, if, you know, if Fami Malik is doing these autopsies, I mean, we're all screwed. Mm hmm. Well, the night that Brenda had gone missing, she was wearing sandals, the kind with the long laces that you can wrap up around your ankles and shins. Like the Caesar. Mm -hmm. Well, someone had ripped the laces from those sandals and used them to bind Brenda's feet and wrist. The -hmm. medical examiner made a strange discovery. Someone had forcibly stuffed the girl's underwear into her throat, and they determined that this was after she was killed. The medical examiner also was able to narrow down the time of death. Um, whoever had abducted her kept her alive most of that night. Uh, she was killed sometime near sunrise. It was the medical examiner's opinion that Brenda had been thrown in the water from either a pier or a boat and was not simply just tossed in from the shore. You'd think if they threw her in from a boat, that's a little more discreet than mm-hmm. off of a pier. Yeah, and I think they're able to judge this by the amount of cuts and bruising that would have gone on on the body after the time of death. Um, They didn't find a lot of these, and that's why they believe that it was somebody that had kind of cleanly tossed her into the water from a a point that might be already out a considerable distance in the water. Now, of course, all of these cases are very sad, but this next one is particularly sad. And it's because, you know, sometimes when we go looking for new cases to cover or cases that are suggested to us, it's, this is rare, but it does happen. Sometimes there is nothing out there on a case, especially for some of the cases early 1980s and prior to that. There is simply no digital footprint or very little or very few uh, bits of information regarding some of these cases. You know, like when we covered Tony Muncy, that cold case, right. uh, he had a very small digital footprint other than a cold case database. Basically, there was nothing on Tony Muncy. That's why investigative databases, blogs, forums, and web sleuthers are so important to what we are trying to do. As we move further from paper trails and deeper into the digital age, the digital footprint of victims becomes more and more important. Uh, You know, we get asked a lot, how can I get involved in this true crime community and be more than just a spectator? Uh, How can I do more than just listen to podcasts or watch documentaries? Look, I would not suggest someone going out and hitting the pavement and going out and investigating crimes. Um, You know, that's what the paid professionals are for. Uh, But the thing is, what you can do is find a couple of cold cases from your area from back in the 80s, the 70s, maybe even the 60s. Google them, see what comes up. If nothing comes up, then get creative. You know, find the old newspaper articles. This will most likely require you to get out from behind your computer and go out and do some work, but gather some information, write up a short. Well, and when you say creative, that doesn't mean make up the story. <laughs> exactly right. right. Yes. Get the facts right. Because somebody out there is hearing you and they're thinking, oh yeah, I'll just make up the story. I could spin a good yarn. That's that's a good idea. Yeah, get some credible information, gather the information, write up a short but extremely accurate report, post it somewhere using you know the victim's name. Right, and that leads us to this next possible victim, which is uh, Gloria Ann Gonzalez. Now, she was reported missing. Now, her body was never found. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and really the only... D- digital footprint that she has is she's simply a name on some lists that are out there. And that's about it. Um, of course she was probably once a lovely young person and now she's just a name on a list. 
If it weren't for Catherine Casey's wonderful book titled Deliver Us, um, I don't think we would know anything of value about her case. Uh, but what we gained from the book Deliver Us is that uh, Gloria Ann Gonzalez was 19 years old. She worked at a Houston grocery store. Now, she did disappear on October 28, 1971, and it's believed that she would have disappeared somewhere near her home in Houston uh, because, you know, she was last seen by her roommate at their apartment mm-hmm. on Jacqueline Street. Uh, her roommate would be the one to to report Gloria as missing. That brings us to Debbie Ackerman and Maria Johnson, who were both from Galveston, Texas, and both 15 years old. But in their minds, they were kind of going on 20. Uh, They were best friends. Uh, Their friends and loved ones say that they were inseparable. They loved the water and spent much of their time on the beaches of Galveston. Mm -hmm. They were regulars at the local surf shops and the Wicks Ski School. At 9 a.m. on November 11th, 1971, the two left Maria Johnson's house where they had, they had stayed there the night before. They went to a Galveston mall. Now, around mm-hmm. noon, they were last seen together outside of an ice cream store, and they were hitchhiking. Uh, two girls working at the ice cream store saw Debbie and Maria get into a white van. The van had curtains in the back windows and had a peace symbol sticker on it. Right. And Peace the, and love, man. The driver was reported to be white and much older than the girls. The girls could not tell if there was anyone else in the van or not other than the driver. It's very odd to me that hitchhiking was a lot more popular in the, in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Well, it, in some cases, uh, as with was the case with Debbie and Maria, um, they almost preferred hitchhiking. It seemed to be somewhat of a hobby of not just a means of getting to where they needed to go, mm-hmm. but rather than taking any form of public transportation, they would usually hitchhike. My father talked about this before. He used to pick up hitchhikers a lot. I, I don't know why. I think it was just like <laughs> a common thing, but he'd pick them up and uh, he, he recently got like a brand new car or a newer car in the seventies, mm-hmm. picked up a hitchhiker and the guy had like some stuff sticking out of his bag and it poked the the seat and ripped his seat <laughs> so the guy's getting in his car rips the guy's seat he drives him you know a couple miles tells him get out of my damn car but never picked up a hitchhiker after that well and the funny thing that you see in when you watch movies that are based in like the 70s yes hitchhiking was such a common thing that they almost always throw it in a movie in the 70s somewhere where you'll see that cheesy part where there's a girl on the side of the road or a guy, mm-hmm. thumb out in the air, car pulls up, car goes, driver goes, where are you heading to? Going to the beach. Driver goes, far out. And then the guy <laughs> guy or girl gets in the car and then they far drive. Far out, man. They drive to the beach. Most of the time, nothing happens. But we know from covering these cases that uh, there's a reason why hitchhiking is no longer a popular thing to do. Yeah, you can blame Bundy for that. Well, Debbie and Maria, they weren't heard from for a few hours. So one of the parents reached out to the other set of parents. And it was quickly determined that neither of the parents had seen either girl in quite some time. They were reported missing. Because the girls were together, it was believed by police that the two had run away. And they were, quote, probably on drugs. Uh, Two days later, Mm -hmm. just about 36 hours after the two were last seen, the body of the two young girls were found. This is just 10 miles north of where they were last seen. They were in Turner's Bayou in Texas City, 
A fisherman found the two floating in water. Both girls had been shot. They were nude from the waist down. Both girls had their wrists bound with long black, um, what what may have been cords or shoestrings. Mm-hmm. So so the hands and the, the feet were bound. Correct. Similar um, to the, the, the other victim. And I believe in this case that it was specifically noted that these two girls were bound with their wrists in front of them. Right. But either way, they're bound. Right. And and then the the other difference here is the other victim was died by strangulation. These girls died by gunshot. Correct. Now, just two days later, a man at Attic's Reservoir in West Houston, he was out walking with a metal detector looking for, you know, lost items of value, maybe some precious metals. Mm, he's looking for his manhood. <laughs> when he, he ended up coming across a decomposing headless corpse. Oh. The man had to get in his car and drive to a nearby house to phone in what he had found to the police. Now, there would be several weird findings with this here. First, the decapitated body. Okay, so they found the head, but for some reason, the head had no flesh on it. It was just skull and bone. Okay. Uh, this was not the case with the body, though. The, the body had flesh on it and was decomposing at a normal rate. Mm-hmm. Later, the medical examiner would determine that the body uh, was that of missing 19-year-old Gloria Gonzalez, who we, we had talked about earlier. They determined that the decapitation was not something done by her killer, but it had been done by the work of animals in the area. Gloria had been there laying face down for quite some time. I don't know if they ever figured out why the skull had no skin on it uh, and the body still did. I couldn't find that anywhere. Um, I could find that the medical examiner didn't think that the the flesh removed from the skull was due to animals. Anyway, the weirdest part. Okay, so <laughs> repeat that because that's not very clear. So the de- the decapitation was done by animals. The medical examiner, uh, in in their opinion, the decapitation was due to animals removing the skull from the corpse. Right. So if animals are removing the skull, then they're removing the skin around the skull. But it was of the medical examiner's opinion that the flesh was not removed um, by animals. That has no logical, there's no logical sense there. Unless the skull would have been in a place where it would have decomposed at at a much faster rate due to any, you know, there's different... It could There's be any of number of reasons of, of, of the environment, but I'm with you. I think that if, if you if you can make the leap and believe that animals removed the skull, they most likely chewed up the, the soft bits of tissue off of the face. Well, that's gross. Um, but we have turtles in this area, right? And turtles are known for, you know, the fleshy parts like the nose and the ears mm-hmm. are normally attacked first by, like, turtles. Well, if that wasn't strange enough for you in this situation, Captain... Here's another strange situation. So maybe the weirdest part of everything that was found that day, they ended up finding several teeth with the skull. These were loose teeth. Um, But later, the medical examiner determined that one of the teeth did not belong to the victim that they had found, to Mm -hmm. Gloria Gonzalez. Now, Gloria, they obviously ruled her death a homicide, but because of this tooth, they were going to need to go back and search the area. When they did, just about 50 yards from where they had found the body of Gloria Gonzalez, they located another body. Uh Uh, Not so much a body, but rather a pile of bones. Without the skull, but they they found the jawbone. So there were going to be, 
They're going to have to go to dental records here to try to identify this body. Right, but aren't, aren't they capable of doing a DNA test on that tooth and matching it with that skeleton? Um, that I don't know. But what I, what I do know that they did was they they took this jawbone, uh, and I what they can do is take the one loose tooth and see if it would fit in the jawbone. Right. Um, now remember when the story started. We started talking about 13-year-old Colette Wilson who had gone missing from the bus stop after a band camp practice. And remember we said that her father was a dentist. Well, he was also her dentist. He would later be the one that had to identify the remains based on dental records uh, as the remains of of his daughter Colette. That seems like it makes a bunch of sense. Hey, don't you think that they could have another dentist come in and look at the records and look at... They, they could do that. They wouldn't have to have the father do that. That seems very insensitive unless the father wanted to do it. He he may, he, I bet you he, he offered his services in this situation. But like I said, that's a little bit of a conflict of interest. It, it was all of his work. So it, he would be considered the dental expert when it came to this particular person. So I think a conflict of interest. Some of her belongings were found with her remains, but her instrument, her musical instrument, was never located. So at this point in the timeline, we have five missing, but four bodies have been found. Mm -hmm. And we have no arrest. And the newspapers are starting to make the connection. You know, we have several murders of girls and young women. Uh, Could they be connected? And, you know, should police be looking for a killer or maybe even worse, killers? Well, they're going to start digging hard and looking for suspects in this case. And we have some suspects that kind of present themselves. Now I'll go through this by way of using an, a newspaper article that took place. This is from a uh, Houston newspaper and was printed in 1989, but it's in regards to some activities during the seventies. Um, a convicted murderer who has vowed to seek revenge and kill law officers in the Houston area is out of jail as of 1989. And he may be heading back to Houston authorities say Anthony, Michael Nopa. He's 41 years old at the time of his release. He was released from prison after serving 15 years of his 50 year sentence for killing a Brazoria County woman. Uh, Authorities think Nopa will return to Houston where his family and friends are and said they are worried about the threats he has made in the past. We have Jimmy Jones of the Brazora County Sheriff's Office said he is concerned about Nopa since the murderer has threatened to kill several lawmen and recently turned down offers for parole uh, until he was ultimately let go in 1989. Now, after his murder conviction in 1972, Nopa threatened to kill Jones and a guy named James Evans, who is an investigator with the Harris County Sheriff's Office. Now, investigator Jones says that he took these threat seriously and still did at the time of his release back in 1971 nopa was investigated in connection with the deaths of six women in montgomery harris and brazora counties mm-hmm. but he was only convicted in one of the deaths nopa was sentenced to 50 years in prison in 1972 in the death of linda faye sutherland who was 22 years old from brazora county Sutherland was found dead with 72 bullet wounds in her back, shoulders, and legs. Now, we have another guy here, Harry Andrew Lanham. He was sentenced to 25 years in prison for the same killing. And he also 
He was also investigated in the other five incidences as an accomplice. But the five cases other than the five cases against Nopa crumbled in 1972 because Lanham, he attempted to escape from jail. He, he lunged at an officer, tried to grab his gun Mm -hmm. and the officer shot Lanham and killed him. Unfortunately, we have two guys that are convicted of one murder of a young woman. They're being investi- investigated in some of the deaths that we just talked about. But their main witness, their only witness that they had in these investigations was that was Lanham, who was killed when he tried to escape from prison. Right. So Nopo was, uh, he has a bit of a background here. He was convicted of rape before uh, he did the Bazoric County killing uh, testimony in that trial indicated that he took a young woman to an auto salvage yard and raped her repeatedly. Nopo pleaded guilty to a lesser offense in the case because the woman was too terrified to testify against him. So obviously the police had two suspects that they liked a lot in some of these, if not all of these murders, just not able to piece it together. You know, it, it wouldn't surprise me in the least if these guys committed one or more of these outstanding cases. One thing that has that was said in the investigation regarding Linda Fay's death, uh, and, and I believe it was Harry Lanham that said this. He said the two men didn't talk to each other after they had picked up Linda, mm-hmm. but the whole time that they were driving around, they both knew that they were going to kill her. Like, it's like, wow, you know, that, that that rings of maybe these two have done this sort of thing before. All right, we'll get back into the Killing Fields trilogy after this quick beer break. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go, for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot garage. 
This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out betterhelp.com slash garage today. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL Learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with factors, no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer. Thanks to the menu of chef crafted meals with options like calorie smart protein plus and keto. Factors fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious. From breakfast to dessert, stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, we're back. Cheers, mates. 
So we have the bodies of several young girls and women showing up, popping up all over the I-45 in Galveston area. And then we have those two suspects, but that investigation quickly went nowhere. So continuing on, this takes us to January 3rd, 1972, when two boys fishing on Taylor Bayou near Webster, Texas, they found a human skull floating in the lake. The skull ended up belonging to a young girl. Uh, Six weeks later, authorities searching a nearby field find the rest of her remains, and along with it, they find the remains of another girl. Dental records identified the girls as Rhonda Johnson and Sharon Shaw. Now, they had gone missing the previous summer. They went missing in August of 1971. Unfortunately, they were too decomposed, and their cause of death uh, would not be determined. Well, because this is in Texas, and bodies decompose way faster in Texas, I believe, due to the sun and the elements. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, this is a bit of a a crazy story here. So about five months after the girls' bodies were found, Mm -hmm. 23-year-old gas station attendant Michael Lloyd Self was arrested, and he was charged with the murders. Apparently, Self was being investigated for some other crime at the time, uh, this was something petty, like like theft or something like that, mm-hmm. something that had nothing to do with the murders of these two girls. He ends up being convicted of the crimes, and he was sentenced to life in prison. However, he has always claimed that he is innocent of these two murders. Well, how did this whole thing go down? Let's, let's go through this, Captain. So we have Rhonda Johnson and Sharon Shaw. Mm-hmm. They were last seen on August 4th, 1971, They were heading towards the Jericho Surf and Sea Shop in Galveston, Texas. An investigation. That's what they told family members or friends. Correct. So an investigation was soon launched. Uh, Pressure was placed on the officers investigating these murders because Rhonda's grandfather was a prominent city council member. In late May 1972, the Webster City Council hired a new police chief. This is Don Morris and an assistant chief, Tommy Deal. Uh, they, you can question if they were qualified for these positions. They came from the traffic division of the Texas Department of Public Safety. Mm-hmm. A few weeks after the two were hired, Morris received a tip from city councilman Glenn Price about Michael Lloyd Self. Now, at the time, Michael Lloyd Self was a known sex offender because he had been arrested in previous uh cases for peeping Tom incidents. Mm -hmm. And we know where that normally leads to. Mm -hmm. On June 9th, 1972 at 5 a.m., Tommy Deal and Officer Herman Morgan visited the gas station where Self worked the night shift. Deal mentioned that he believed Self was thinking about the two girls, referring to Rhonda and Sharon, when they were talking to Self. But now Self would say that he was confused about the conversation they were having. He believed that he was talking about his estranged wife and his and new girlfriend mm-hmm. uh, and wasn't talking about murder at all. Later that morning, self... Wait, I'm, I'm confused by all this. So well, he confesses, but he thinks he's talking about somebody else? No, he's, he's being interviewed by these two 
officers. Right. Okay. And so they're asking him about two girls. They never mentioned them by name. Mm-hmm. And they're not talking about girls being murdered. They're just talking to him about two girls. That he was talking to. That he Well, and they claim that he knew these two girls right. and they knew who he was talking about. Right. So he assumed that they were talking about his estranged wife that he had not seen in a while and his new girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Um, later that morning, Michael Lloyd Self did he voluntarily went to the police station for further questioning. The officers asked self if he had recognized pictures of Rhonda and Sharon. He said that he had recognized them, but he did not know them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe he had seen them around. Maybe they were somebody that had come into the gas station at some point. But immediately afterwards, well, and you know this because you worked at a gas station for a while. You you start seeing regulars mm -hmm. and you kind of know them by face. Same with, with the bank. You might not know their name but you've seen them come into the bank multiple times or the gas station multiple times. And with the gas station for me, captain, a lot of times I didn't know the person by name, but I knew him by, Oh, this is the coffee Marlboro lights guy. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just the thing he gets every other morning. And this could be the case here. Um, but immediately after he says that he recognized the girls, but did not know them. Well, self was arrested and he was charged for their murders. So investigators, no evidence. Well, yeah. And (laughs) And other than I, yeah, I think I kind of know him. Oh, arrest him. Mm -hmm. Um, Michael Lloyd self was not, he's described Mm -hmm. as not the sharpest tool in the shed. Let's say, um, the officers interrogated him after they arrested him. And during this interrogation, they claimed that they had evidence connecting him to the murders. Again, self denies any involvement. What's this? evidence. Uh, I don't think that that's ever clear to anybody. <laughs> right. Right. Cause uh, there was none. Mm-hmm. Well, another officer, Jerry Mitchell, he stopped in during the interrogation and he was observing the interrogation and he noticed that he thought that Michael Lloyd self was quite relaxed and he did not appear to be nervous at all. Mm-hmm. Um, Mitchell left the room and chief Morris, remember we talked about him. He then took charge of the in- interrogation. According to Michael Lloyd self, Morris started asking him about why he killed the victims. Morris said that he wanted a confession and he would not leave until he got one. Morris allegedly held self against a wall and poked him multiple times with his nightstick. Morris also allegedly took out bullets from his gun and placed them on the table. Michael Lloyd self would later say that he really feared that Morris was going to kill him. Okay, so he's being held against the wall, being poked with a nightstick, and these are the back in the 70s. I mean, this is one long stick. It's not the kind that, um, you know, retracts, right? Right. So these things are tough. Yeah, it's like being poked with a small baseball bat. Yeah, but maybe even harder. Mm -hmm. And then he's taking bullets out of his gun, Yeah, and he's placing them on the table. Yeah. Uh, (sighs) Wow. You might, you might as well just waterboard him well, at this point, right? Morris allegedly told Michael Lloyd self that he would shoot him if he didn't sign a confession. Hmm. Um, so eventually Michael Lloyd self agreed to write and sign a confession. Uh, the thing here is he would have to sign multiple confessions because he didn't get a lot of the information right in the earlier confessions. Um, Eventually, it's alleged that Morris told him what he had to write down. And less than an hour and after... And we've seen this 
time and time again, haven't we? Yeah. It's it's pathetic is what it is. Yeah. Less than an hour after Jerry Mitchell left, he then returned. And at this point, he's seeing Michael Lloyd self in a much different situation. No longer is he relaxed and calm. Mm -hmm. He now describes Michael Lloyd self to be extremely upset and visibly shaken. Um, Mitchell noticed that Morris had self rewrite his confession several times. Self self's confession did not completely match with the known facts of the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, in his confession, self claimed that he had dumped the bodies at El Largo, which was 20 miles from the Taylor Bayou where the bodies were actually found. And, and we've talked about this before. One of a, a detective friend that we know, uh, talks about how he would go in, get a written confession, come back out, not even look at it. He just put it on his desk and then go back in and go, Hey, look that this story is not all lining mm-hmm. up. Now he wouldn't tell him this part isn't lining up or this part isn't lining up. He would just tell him this isn't really lining up. Mm. So write it again. And he'd do that sometimes several times. And by taking all three confessions, you get a better picture of what was actually happening. But in this case, this person is going, Oh, by the way, this isn't correct and this isn't correct and this isn't correct. I mean, we you see this, you know, like we talked about before with like Jesse Miss Kelly, I mean, leading the the witness. I mean, uh, what justice is this? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like a teacher grading a paper that keeps returning the paper to you with the wrong answer circled or with a big red X on them and wants you to correct what you got wrong. Right. Uh, you know, the confession stated that self choked one of the girls but there was no evidence of that injury on their remains. So first he gets the location of the bodies wrong by 20 miles. Then mm-hmm. he gets the cause of death in one of the girls as wrong as well. The confession also stated that self went to Sharon's house to pick up the girls, but her family contradicts that and that they, because they, they left on their own. Yeah. They weren't last seen at, at her house. Yeah. yeah. So it's ridiculous. Uh, the other thing about the confession while we're on the, the wrong answer, get me heated up, get me, get me started. His confession also stated that the girls were yelling, waving and hanging out of his car, but there were no witnesses that could be found to confirm this. Right. In fact, witnesses placed the girls in Galveston at around 9 PM, even though in self's confession, they were already with him in Webster by that time. It's ridiculous. So three days after self's arrest and confession, he took a polygraph test where he again confessed to the murders. Uh, he also claimed that he had knowledge on other murders that had taken place in Texas in 1971 and 1972. Uh, in his second confession, self claimed that he hit the girls with a Coke bottle and then dumped them in the bayou. These statements again conflict with his first confession. Right, this, so, but he took this polygraph test. What, what were the findings of that test? He failed the test. The test where he confessed to the murders. Right. He fails that test. In his second confession, Self also claimed that he stripped the girl's clothing and threw it into the side onto the side of the highway. However, the girl's clothing was found with them along with uh, an unidentified pair of keys. Mm-hmm. All right. I don't know how you could get a confession more wrong than this. I mean, it's... Well, here's the problem, though, is you have this system where people get ahead. People make more money. You know, uh, private pro- uh, public prosecutors don't make a lot of money. The more convictions they get, the more then they can move up the ranks. Mm-hmm. 
right? And and this is ridiculous because it's all about just getting the win. Who cares how you get it? Maybe you deflate the football a little bit. Who cares? You got to get the win. And, and this is what's so ridiculous. It should be based off of you need to get the truth. And if you don't get a conviction, who cares? It's about getting the truth. Well, and it sounds to me like one of these guys got a significant promotion. Both these guys received significant promotions did. from traffic division all the way up to chief of police and assistant chief. One of these guys had a relative that was a high-ranking public official. Mm-hmm. And these guys get in here. They don't know what they're doing. And they there's a new sheriff in town. I'm going to solve all these cases. Right. And this new sheriff in town is a real turd bag. Well, listen to this. Two weeks after Michael Lloyd's self was arrested... Two sheriff's deputies checked him out of the jail. This is on the pretext of buying him dinner. Afterwards, the deputies. Sometimes you talk too fast. So they're going to check him out of jail Mm -hmm. to buy him dinner. Correct. Uh, A guy that confessed to killing two teenagers. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. So afterwards, I'm guessing this is after their nice sit down dinner together. The deputies drove him around to places mentioned in the confession and took pictures of him at these places. This was presented in court as a third confession by Michael Lloyd self. Self's attorney claimed that this was not a confession and was actually illegal. You know, they're, they're taking pictures of him at these different sites of him, like standing and pointing to things. And, you know, so it looks very incriminating. Of course it does. Now, but we take you out, we get we get you a Salisbury steak, and then we're going to drop you off at these locations and take your picture while you're there. Uh, this is horrible police work. Well, during while he was awaiting trial, uh, there was an investigator. This is Dave uh, Coborn. He met with Michael Lloyd Self in jail, and Self told him that Morris and Deal had attacked him and beat a confession out of him. He also mentioned how Morris removed several bullets from a handgun and placed them in front of him. And now Coborn, he remembered that that he had witnessed Morris doing this same thing uh, to another prisoner before. Now, Coborn wanted to testify at Michael Lloyd Self's trial. However, he was they they never called him and would not let him testify during this trial. On May 15, 1973, Michael Lloyd Self was convicted of murder and sentenced to life in prison. Three years later, remember the sheriffs that we were talking about, these these mm-hmm. wonderful guys, Don Morris and Tommy Deal, mm-hmm. uh, these police guys, they were arrested and charged with bank robbery. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, really? They were part of a robbery group that had robbed banks in 1972 and 1973. In 1976, Tommy Morris... Tommy Deal. Tommy Deal. Tommy Shitstain. Morris was sentenced to 55 years in prison and Deal was sentenced to 30 years in prison. Well, there is karma for you, you know, and I believe in that. So they got what they deserved. They finally got caught for their ridiculous uh, illegal actions. You know, uh, why they were wearing the badge and when they weren't wearing the badge, they got caught. Yeah, they were not deserving of being public officials or public service uh, people at all. Um, now, despite the arrest of Nopa and Lanham, who we talked about earlier, who had killed the one girl, and you know whether you agree or disagree with the arrest and conviction of Michael Lloyd South, mm-hmm. you know no one's arguing that Nopa and Lanham didn't kill Linda Faye Sutherland. But of course, you have to wonder how many more murders did those two do? 
Um, but if if they did all of them, uh, or you also have to wonder why would the murders continue after these arrests and these convictions? And that's yeah, exactly and what death, happened, right? Yeah. So now we have uh, January third, nineteen seventy three. We have Kimberly Pitchford, who is age 16. She took the school bus to attend all of her classes that day. Mm-hmm. Now, after school, she went to detention. She had detention for being late to a class. After detention, she went to her driver's education class. This class started at 5 p.m. and it was over at 6 p.m. She was supposed to call home for a ride. Her, her mom waited for the call, but the call never came. Then Kimberly's parents started calling all of her friends, asking where they could find their daughter. Later that night, Kimberly's parents filed a missing persons report with the police. Mm -hmm. Two days later, two boys traveling on a rural stretch of road. uh, This is County Road 65. uh, The two boys spotted a black coat near a guardrail. They got out of their vehicle to check it out. Before they could return to their vehicle, they spotted what appeared to be a body floating upside down in a nearby ditch. That was, this ditch is full of water due to recent heavy rainfall. The, this frightened the boys and they weren't really sure what they were looking at. So they went and got one of the boys fathers who returned to the area with the boys. And after nudging the body with a stick, um, he believed that they were looking at a real dead body. They notified police of what they had found. And Kimberly Pitchford had been located. She had been strangled and her body was found about 25 miles south of where she was last seen. That was the driving school in Pasadena, Texas, which we should know is near the Interstate 45. Right, so legs, arms bound? Um, I I don't have any of that information. I don't think that that was the case with her body. They probably would have reported it if if it was such. Yeah, and the, the black thing that they spotted near the guardrail turned out to be some of her clothing. I believe it was a jacket that she would, would have been wearing at the time of her disappearance. Mm-hmm. Uh, Georgia Gear, uh, age 14, and Brooks Bracewell, age 12, uh, they had apparently skipped school on September 6th, 1974. Shortly afterward, they were reported missing. Now, several tips came in. Uh, One tip saying that they were seen at a motel near Alvin, Texas, playing football with a group of guys. Mm. Several other tips said that the two girls were seen hitchhiking. Uh, But the tip that may have the most credibility, as this is the most widely reported to this day, is that they were last seen together in a convenience store in Dickinson, Texas. This is, again, close to the infamous Texas Interstate I-45. The two girls wouldn't be found for quite some time. It wasn't until April 18th, 1981, that the bodies were found. A man working near an oil field found two skulls. This area is basically swampland near Alvin, Texas. The dental records identified the skulls as belonging to the two missing girls, Georgia Gear and Brooks Bracewell. Injuries to the skull pointed to obvious cause of death. The two teenage girls had been beaten to death. Mm. Uh, to me, it's it's strange that the, the tip that seems to have stood the test of time better than the others is the convenience store tip and not the playing football tip. You know, I only question this because the bodies were found closer to the area of the football tip rather than that of the store, which was in Dickinson, uh, which is not terribly far from still, you know. Right. 
Well, but what's interesting here is we, you know, we have victims that, that have died from strangulation. We've had victims die from gunshots. And now we have uh, two victims that have died from um, being beat in the in the head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the cause of death here is all over all over the shop. Now um, we have twelve year old Suzanne Bowers. She was abducted while she was walking home in May of nineteen seventy seven, uh, around ten a.m. on May twenty first. Mm-hmm. Uh, she left her grandparents' home. She was going to head back to her own house. Uh, her plan was to go home and get a bathing suit and then a bicycle and head to the beach. Uh, Suzanne had rode her bike to the beach often, so this wasn't something out of the norm for her. Suzanne had a friend waiting for her at the beach, but unfortunately, Suzanne never arrived. And when the grandparents started looking for Suzanne, they quickly learned that she never even she never even arrived at her own parents' home to retrieve the bicycle and the bathing suit. Right. Two years later, two boys out riding dirt bikes found the skeleton of Suzanne Bowers. You find it a little odd that, you know, we'll have one individual, one individual female go missing or two individual females go missing and and they're always found by, it seems like, a group of two boys. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think that plays to the areas where these bodies are found. Mm-hmm. Uh, these These are areas that are kind of out of the way. You know, you often hear that they're being found by fishermen or right. two guys on two dudes on dirt bikes, right? Uh, two boys playing in the woods. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it just lends to where they're being found. Um, here's the weird thing, though: the Bowers case is is not considered to be solved, um, but I'm sure at one point many investigators considered the case to be closed. This was one of many, many murders. That remember uh, a guy by the name of Henry Lee Lucas? Yeah. We talked about him when we discussed discussed Otis Toole in the uh, Adam Walsh case. Now, uh, Henry Lee Lucas was a man that claimed to have killed anywhere from about 40 to 150 people. Well, this was one of the murders that he said he gave a vague confession uh, that that he had killed Suzanne Bowers. Yeah, Um, but he also lied about tons of stuff. mm Mm-hmm. I mean, he, I mean, one, he claims he killed way more people than he actually did kill. And then half the confessions that he was confessing to, like there was little to no evidence connecting him. Well, and his confession regarding Suzanne Bowers kind of went like this. Mm -hmm. The detectives were like, Hey, this, you, you remember this little girl, 12 years old that was picked up in this area. And then she was found later found dead in this area. And He's like, sure, I, I was, I could have been in that area. I, I probably killed somebody, a little girl. I don't remember her name. And then anything else that he gave to them, uh, it was really nothing of any value regarding the girl's case or or her murder at all. Right. Again, I think this is, you know, sometimes they, they don't do their due diligence to have the case closed. They just close it on their own because they don't want to deal with it. Later, Henry Lee Lucas would recant many of his confessions, but this was one that he specifically named. You know, he specifically Mm -hmm. said by name he didn't kill Suzanne Bowers, stating what little he knew about the case was fed to him by police officers. And he confessed to this murder in trade for favors and privileges. Mm -hmm. Um, It's been noted that in a lot of these confessions and a lot of these cases that he received small privileges, you know, like cigarettes and access outside of the prison where they would take him on these field trips to identify places where he supposedly killed somebody and also allowing him access to a, a personal TV 
uh, in his cell for mm. his help on all these, you know, many also, cases across the southern states. And also, I think more phone privileges as well. Yeah, Which, yeah. You know, when you're rotting away in prison, I, I would assume that that would be like, you know, a golden ticket. Yeah, he was. He was. You know, if if what my gut tells me about Lucas is mm-hmm. he's just really a big loser that probably killed one or two people or was involved in in one or two incidences, and he was, you know, he he took advantage of of the situation and was able to manipulate some of these officers into getting what he wanted. And at the same time, these officers, you know, they're not trying to do anything wrong, but they need to clear these cases, and they see this guy who acts like a monster and talks about things that only a monster would do. Mm-hmm. And they think, oh, well, he's capable and he says he did it. So there well, you go. They are doing something wrong because they, you have to ask the questions to get the answers, to find the truth. And if he isn't able to supply you with those answers without you force feeding those answers, mm-hmm. then he, he didn't do the crime. The crime needs to stay open. The case needs to stay open. There needs to be real justice for these families, real justice for the victims. And that's what they're doing wrong. Right. You're exactly right, Captain, because then what you're ultimately left with years later when the when the dust clears, when the smoke clears and you figure out that these confessions are wrong, you're left with no answers. And you're also left with a situation where people stop investigating these mm-hmm. these cases and and they, they go cold because you think that they're closed. Yeah. Or think about how many times uh, there are, are cases solved years later because uh, this guy got drunk and he was telling me about this time. You know, and these drunk confessions or whatever. Drunk confessions, deathbed confessions. Right, but you get some weird confession and they go, well, look, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter about these confessions because this guy is the guy that he's in jail. Mm-hmm. And and so this guy might must just be drunk and they dismiss certain evidence. And there's a big time period that goes by when they say this crime was committed uh, by, by Lucas. Well, there's time that goes by that you're you're missing out on evidence and 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 footwork that you could have done. So yeah, they did something really wrong, and they and they do it wrong constantly. A couple of items in closing before we finish up with the 1970s. Um, first, Colette Wilson, the first girl that we discussed. Uh, many consider her to be the first of many victims. She was the girl that was was found, and her father Thomas. Uh, a dentist identified the remains as mm-hmm. Colette uh, due to her dental work that he had performed. Now, Colette's father, Thomas, he only lived for about four years after her death. The family said that he became obsessed with solving the case, uh, and he sadly died of a heart attack at the young age of 42. Now, regarding Michael Lloyd's self and the bad cops that sent him to prison for life, Don Morris and Tommy Deal, both were both of these bad cops were eventually paroled, uh, but Deal was later arrested again for another robbery. Um, yeah, he's just a, just a bad seed, man. Yeah. Um, now, Michael Lloyd Self's attorney pushed for a new trial for many, many years for him, but that ended with no luck at all. Then in April 2nd of uh, 1980, a man walked into a police station in Taylor Lake, Texas, and confessed to the murders of Rhonda Johnson and Sharon Shaw. The man's confession was vague, uh, but he did mention that he used a cord to tie the girl's bodies down. Uh, This fact was never mentioned by Michael Lloyd Self. However, the police did know about the cord and had purposefully withheld the fact in order to determine... Uh, possible truth of, of the confession 
that they would receive. The man, although suffering from psychosis, did know the girls and actually lived in the same apartment complex as one of them. Uh, the name of this man was withheld from newspaper articles. Uh, despite the confession and criminal activities of the bad cops, Morris and Deal, Michael Lloyd Self's conviction was upheld. And in 1992, Michael Lloyd Self was denied parole. On March 30th, 1993, uh, U.S. Supreme Court refused to consider his request for a new trial. Self uh, and his attorney and even investigator Coborn, uh, however, are certain that someone else is responsible for the murders of Rhonda Johnson and Sharon Shaw. Michael Lloyd Self passed away in prison in 2000. For everything true crime, go to truecrimegarage.com. Be good, be kind, and don't litter. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.